Welcome in to Between Innings with Dan Colco. Off-season edition. Mm-hmm. Checking in now into November. It, feel, it feels like the season ended like three months ago, but here we are, early November. First off-season podcast of the winter, Dan Colco, alongside John Harvey, as always. Welcome into the Between Innings podcast. Sponsored by our friends at Peterson Associates. John, how you doing, buddy? Good. Yeah, like you said, it's it feels like the base our season ended three months ago, but at the same time, I look back and ask myself, what did I do the last month? Yeah, nothing. I've accomplished nothing. Um, my life is not in any way better. I haven't really improved myself as a human being. I haven't been reading much. I have been in the gym a little bit, so I guess mm-hmm. that's good for me. But other than that, uh, what have I done with this time? Really nothing. Yeah, same. It's hard to believe it's been a month since Nats baseball. But it also seems like we're kind of turning pages, getting closer to baseball. You know, GM meetings just happened. Winter meetings are coming up. So before we know it, it's going to be February and we're going to be in West Palm Beach. We did have, uh, shortly after the season ended, a fun little weekend. We went down uh, to the Ashburn area in Virginia and... Played some golf with a group of our buddies. That was a fun little weekend and maybe something coming up later on in the winter as well. A little uh, vacation. You and uh, you and your wife, Audrey, doing any trips or anything? Yeah, we have a big one planned in February to early February to Australia for two weeks with another couple of our friends. So we're excited about that. And uh, yeah, the, the golf trip to Virginia was great. It's the second time we've done it. There's always been eight guys. And, you know, I don't think it's any secret that the We've been on the same team both times, and we've been victorious both times. Yeah, there's a common thread there for sure. Um, that was fun. Uh, myself kind of laying low for much of the winter, a couple small trips, and then um, going on an African safari with my family come February. So that'll be a lot of fun and very interesting. Yeah. Um, lots to talk about in terms of baseball stuff in today's podcast. Obviously, uh, for those following the Nationals, over the last week or so, there's one main conversation which I keep getting asked about over and over and over and over and over again. That's the pickup of Kyle Bearclaw. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, we'll get into the Bryce Harper situation, obviously, in, in much detail. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the moves that the Nationals have made to this point, uh, picking up Kyle Bearclaw and, and Trevor Rosenthal to bolster their bullpen. We'll talk about other needs that this Nationals team has to address and where we feel like they might turn to try and fill those needs. So a lot of uh, topics to hit on in today's podcast. First, though, John, let, let's, um, let's move back through the month of October and, and talk about what was the 2018 postseason. Boston Red Sox come out World Series champions. Um, I know it differs for everyone from player to player, from coach to coach, and for those of us in the media world, how much of the postseason we actually choose to watch. I've talked to players uh, that say that they really enjoy watching the postseason action and maybe picking up on some stuff. I've talked to guys who say, I don't want anything to do with baseball once I'm done with baseball. Where do you fall in, in that spectrum? I'm on the side that does not watch as much. I really didn't watch a ton. I watched most of the World Series. Um, but I, honestly, I think a part of it is because once you get into October, you know, you have college football kicking into full gear, NFL's going full full throttle. So I just – it's not that I wasn't interested. I mean, I was kind of baseballed out, and I think that's, you know, acceptable reasonable, and yeah. reasonable. But um, I did watch most of the World Series, and from game one, I didn't think the Dodgers had a chance. I thought the Red Sox were just that good this year. 
they proved themselves to be by far the most talented team in the postseason. I, I was a little surprised that they dominated the Yankees the way that they did. I was very surprised the way that they dominated the Astros the way that they did. Winning or, or losing one game in that series might have been game one, uh, if I remember right, and then just rolling the rest of the way out, winning that series 4-1, and then taking down the Dodgers 4-1 as well. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with you. You also just, once you have a chance to do things other than baseball in terms of your life, you kind of want to do those things again, right. uh, hang out with friends and, and all that. Um, the, the key takeaways for me, John, I, I've got three of them in, in terms of the postseason and the Red Sox winning the World Series specifically. I'll roll through them quickly, and then we can get to your key takeaways. Then we'll move into Nationals topics. Um, first of all, just how uh, much better the Red Sox were. Uh, I think that played itself out. Secondly, how deep these rosters were. When you're talking about Steve Pierce coming off the bench a lot of the time and making the type of impact that he did, World Series MVP, Eduardo Nunez, um, you've got these rotations that are incredibly deep where these guys are coming out of the bullpen um, on days that they're not starting. Um, the Dodgers even, when you're talking about David Freeze making the type of contributions that he did, he was a late season pickup, um, and so many other guys on their roster. From 1 to 25, when you get that deep into October, you really do need contributions from everyone. And I think that showed itself out. And, you know, honestly, after watching the Nationals day in and day out for the entire course of the season, just the dramatic difference between the depth and quality depth of rosters between what they were putting out, at least this season, late in the season, and what the Red Sox and a couple other postseason teams had. Uh, and, and then, to me, John, it's um, the fact that the Red Sox were able to, in this era of launch angle and strikeouts, extend innings and drive in runs with two outs and pick up two strike hits and put the bat on the ball. And yeah, the focus these days is on hitting home runs and that's how you're going to get paid and that's how a lot of teams think they're going to win. But what I saw with the Red Sox was a team that was kind of bucking the most recent trend in that regard and having a lot of success doing it. They battled teams, they fought off pitches, they stayed in at-bats, and it really paid off for them in a major way. They kind of were the outlier in a lot of regards when it came to their, their runners in scoring position numbers, their two-out numbers, their two-strike numbers, and it led to really good things for them. Well, and they hit big home runs, too. I mean, sure, Pierce won the MVP because he hit three homers, you know, but you're right. I mean, it was every time they had a runner in scoring position and two outs, it seemed like they came through. And it was just, it was amazing. And, and like, like you said, and like I said, it, they were easily the best team in the playoffs this year. I don't think there was a close second. There was some, and there were some really good teams. You know, one of my biggest takeaways, especially in the National League, because I tend to migrate towards NL ball now just because, you know, we've been working for the Nationals sure. for so long. In a series, I don't care if it's five or seven, we'll throw the wild card game out because that's an anomaly. But in a series, even in this era of launch angle and strikeouts, pitching reigns supreme. The, the teams with better pitching, and I thought the starting pitching in the National League was very slim. It was not very deep. But the teams that had the better pitching won. So, you know, the Brewers had virtually no starting pitching. The and they pieced it together for a while, and then eventually it caught up to them. There's only so many times you can have a starting pitcher, you know, go one inning, an inning plus, and have it pay off for you. Right. The game against the Dodgers when they pulled Wade Miley after a batter, what he, yeah. well, that was ridiculous. But, I mean, the Braves... Not as good as starting pitching. And eventually the Dodgers rose to the top there. 
but they lost to the Red Sox, and I think the Red Sox have a deeper rotation than the Dodgers do. I mean, Bueller pitched great in the playoffs. I mean, that's a great sign for the Dodgers moving forward. They re-signed Kershaw, so they have those two going moving forward. But it, to me, it was pitching. Pitching reigned supreme in the National League. Yeah, and the Dodgers gave it a good run. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much money they're willing to spend this offseason, whether they make a run for a certain outfielder wearing the number 34 who had spent the last seven years in D.C., um, how they choose to uh, address their roster in a lot of ways. But um, I, I would say that down the stretch, they, they clearly, uh, the Brewers made a good run, but the Dodgers p- appeared to me to be the best team in the National League, and we'll see how it shapes up in 2019. And one final question for you. Did, did you think Steve Pierce was the MVP, or did you think David Price should have got it? Um, Honestly, I wasn't passionate about it either way. Those two guys, either one of them, to me, could have taken it down. I I think the way that Price was able to impact the game, not just when he started, but I can't remember if he came in relief in the World Series or he not. Wa- he warmed up. He, he warmed, warmed up, up, but didn't come in. Um, so I guess just maybe just more in the postseason overall, his ability to come in late in games, kind of like Eovaldi and, and impact games where he didn't start. Um, but Price was great, and, and I'm, I'm happy for him that he got to put that whole narrative, kind of like Strauss did, Last postseason, right. you know, having that postseason success um, gets to put the narrative to bed at least for a little while. Yeah, I'm like you. I really didn't carry the way. I thought Steve Pierce is a great story. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times I feel like the offensive player that gets hot late in a series, like he did the last two games, kind of trumps a starting pitcher that won game two. Recency bias. Right. I mean, Pierce, I mean, Price obviously won the last game too, but mm-hmm. he also, his other win was so early in the series, he kind of gets overlooked. But yeah, I mean, congrats to the Red Sox. They, they definitely deserved it. 119 wins overall for them, 108 in the regular season and 11 and just three losses in the postseason. Good for them. All right, John, let's get into our Nationals talk. We've got a lot of it, and we'll start with leading off. Good one. Um, All right, so let's recap first of all, John, the moves that the Nationals have made to this point. And, you know, we're sitting here on, what are we, November 8th. And most years to this point in the calendar, teams have not made any moves um, in terms of free agent pickups or trades. The Nationals have already made two and two significant ones. Before the postseason was even complete, they made a trade with the Marlins, picking up right-handed reliever Kyle Bearclaw, who Nats fans have seen over the last couple years, sending international slot money to Miami. So didn't have to give up anything in terms of prospects in return for a hard-throwing right-handed reliever who has some late-inning experience. Now, the Nats were able to get Bearclaw, not just because the Marlins were trying to get international slot money to get Victor, 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 um, the the Cuban prospect and his brother, but also because Bearclaw slumped in the second half of the season. Here are his numbers in 2018. The first half, he was lights out, a 1.28 ERA, Found his way into the closer's role largely because of those numbers. Second half struggled, a 13.5 ERA. So two dramatically different halves for him there. He's got swing and miss stuff, though. Seven point, or rather 9.7 strikeouts per nine innings. A lot of walks, 5.5 walks per nine innings. So control for him, John, is, is going to be an issue. But this is a guy that throws hard has experience in the late innings, and with the Nats is not going to be asked to pitch the ninth inning and probably not going to be asked very often to pitch the eighth inning after the second 
addition that we're going to talk about here shortly. Kyle Bearclaw, a nice pickup in a, in a middle to late relief type of role. I think a really smart move by the Nats and Mike Rizzo. Yeah, and like the next one we're going to talk about, both of them are so low risk and have the potential to be so high reward. I mean, it, I, I really do like to pick up. And I kind of wonder what happened in the second half because he's been very good for years. It, it wasn't just this the 2018 first half that he was good. He was really good in 16, really good in 17 when he threw 72 innings and 66 innings with an ERA sub two. So I, he did go on the DL in the second half this year with a back issue. So maybe that was it. Maybe that threw off his, his mechanics or his fundamentals and, and that's what threw him off. But I trust that the Nats know that they can get him back on track. And if they can, like you said, now you have a bona fide reliever, hard thrower, pitching that sixth inning, the seventh inning, which we very well know was one of the black marks on the Nats season this year. And if he is needed to close, he picked up 17 or rather 10 saves in 17 opportunities last year. So not a great ratio there, but he does have experience in that role. And, you know, one thing that the Nats have lacked over the last couple of years, let's be honest, is hard-throwing late-inning guys. They had Ryan Madsen in 2017, who, you know, was throwing 96, 97, 98. Uh, this year, the, the Madsen, uh, you know, it, it, he didn't pan out, both with the Nats and with the Dodgers in some ways. Um, but you get a guy who's throwing 97, 98 miles an hour, and Kyle Bearclaw can miss some bats for you. So a nice pickup there, and only sending international slot money to Miami. Now, the second pickup, a free agent edition. This one just a handful of days ago. Nationals announcing it over the weekend. Signing former Cardinals closer Trevor Rosenthal. One-year, $7 million deal with an option for another year. That, that option seems unlikely to get picked up. There would need to be some things that trigger it in terms of uh, performance on the field. And then, essentially, Rosenthal would need to perform well enough to trigger those that option, but not well enough that he would like to not exercise that option. So one year, $7 million guaranteed for Trevor Rosenthal. And this is a guy who has tons of ninth inning experience, tons of postseason experience. Now, had Tommy John surgery, which knocked him out for all of 2017, but through uh, essentially a, a tryout bullpen session for a number of teams. Recently, was clocked at 98, 99 miles an hour. Breaking stuff looked really sharp. All reports are Trevor Rosenthal back to his old pre-Tommy John self. John, you can run through some numbers. What stands out to you with Trevor Rosenthal, a guy who we've seen over the years and we've seen be really good at times over the years? Well, I think you brought up a great point in that he's only 28 years old, as is Bearclaw, but his playoff experience is vast. He's he's pitched in 23 postseason games with a 0.69 ERA. So again, like Bearclaw, you're getting a guy that $7 million is not nothing for a reliever, but for what he could be is relatively cheap. And you have that guy that now will be right next to Sean Doolittle at the back of that bullpen. And if Sean goes down with an injury like he did in 2018. Don't be surprised if it's Trevor closing game. So, again, just a, a great, smart play by the Nats front end – or front office, excuse me. Yeah, this is a guy that could probably be a closer on a lot of teams, assuming he's healthy and he's, and he's back to his old self. I mean, he's, he's shown that he can fill that role. And I, I think the fact that – what you look to do, and this is what the Nationals did, what, two seasons ago, is you kind of stack – closers or guys that can be closers. They did that in 2017 
with Sean Doolittle when Ryan Madsen was at his, you know, uh, top self and, and Brandon Kinsler was pitching really well. They had three guys who have closed in working the back three innings for them in, uh, in games. And that's what they'll have again with, with Rosenthal and Doolittle. And um, this is a guy who was looking for a, a short-term deal to probably reset his value, give himself a chance to prove that he's healthy, and the Nats get to benefit uh, with, with a short-term deal. They don't have to guarantee a ton, and they get a, a proven, established back-end guy. Yeah, and, and the fact that he's only 28 keeps jumping out at me just because you, we've heard his name for so many years yeah. with the Cardinals. He broke in at a very young age and had immediate success. He's pitched a lot of games in seasons before. He's pitched 68 games three times or more, three times in a season. So if he's healthy and if he gets back to the Trevor Rosenthal of 2013, 14, 15, the Nats got a steal. And just to recap those numbers, he, he really kind of established himself – in 2013, 74 games, pitched to a 2.63 ERA. 2014, 45 saves. 2015, 48 saves. Then a little bit of a down 2016 and uh, suffered the injury last year in 2017. So, um, again, a, a guy that will be a welcome addition, and uh, I look forward to, to meeting him in spring training, spending some time with him, and, and getting to know him uh, as a person and as a pitcher. Um, okay, now, John, let's transition from the moves that have been made into the moves that might be made slash will be made. And let's start with the one Nationals free agent that is captivating the baseball world right now. I'm, of course, talking about Greg Holland. Um, no. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Uh, no, we're, Bryce Harper is the guy, the topic, the area of the free agency spectrum this year that everyone is wanting to speculate on and discuss. And so we'll talk some Bryce now. And um, uh, this came out within the last couple days. The Nationals made an early offer to Bryce when he was still in that exclusive negotiating window. It was actually during the season, according to Chelsea James of the Washington Post. I had heard that the Nets... uh, had made what they felt like was a fair, aggressive offer to Bryce, and Chelsea attached some numbers to that. Ten years, $300 million, no opt-outs in that deal, which is a a part of contracts that we've seen a lot over the last couple of years for monster free agent deals. Um, so, John, my, my quick thoughts on this are, A, that this is showing there's interest from both sides here. The Nationals would like to have Bryce back, and this is this is a reasonable starting point of an offer, and Bryce has expressed that he would like to be back with the Nationals. Beyond that, the, the takeaway for me here is that the Nats have said and shown by pulling this deal off the table after Bryce and, and his agent Scott Boris said, no, we're going we're gonna to look around and hit free agency, is that they're not going to wait. They're not going to wait forever. Uh, they have other moves that need to be made, other areas of the roster that need to be addressed. So this deal apparently now off the table, 10 years, $300 million, they could potentially get back to it, uh, you know, maybe bump that number, maybe adjust things a bit. But to me, it shows that the Nats are interested. They would like to have Bryce back, but they've told him, we're not going to sit here and wait for you forever. Yeah, I think that's the biggest question is how much the Nats are going to let the Bryce Harper sweepstakes dictate their offseason. And I don't think they will. 
I think they're interested in him, but they're not going to sit here and do nothing until they know if they have Bryce or not. I think they're going to act accordingly in other areas, and I think that's important and, and the right thing to do. Now, what I find interesting is that I think even if that offer that they made near the end of the season was $400 million, I still think Bryce and Scott Boris would have denied it because they don't know what they could get out there. They, they At this point, they've gone this far. They might as well see what they can get in the open market. Right. So. I don't think it was a knock at the Nats at all. I think it was, uh, okay, I appreciate it. That's a very nice offer, but I have to see what else is out there. One interesting kind of scenario for me would be, what if that is the best offer he gets? And now it's off the table. $300 million is a ton of money. It's not like there's been a million, $300 million (laughs) contracts out there. So what if that is the best co- contract that he gets and then he goes out and he wades in the water and sees what he gets and then comes back and says, hey, I'll take that 300 and the Nats like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, you're not, you know, so I just, there's a lot to play out and I think it's going to be very entertaining. I think there's a, a much better chance than not that there is a better offer out there, even if it's not one that has a ton more money on the table. It's one that probably includes an opt-out or multiple opt-outs or gives Bryce some sort of flexibility or control of the situation, which would make it a more desirable deal. But you're right. I think there's no way after this had gotten played out as far as it did that Bryce was not going to at least dip his toes into the free agency waters, be able to play the Nationals, leverage the Nationals' $300 million deal, uh, and potentially get more as a result or get who knows where, where he wants to be. He'd like to be back in D.C., but he might have another city in mind that he'd like to be at too, and maybe he can leverage this uh, into a better offer at, at that spot. We'll, we'll see how it plays out, but uh, I think it's important that the Nationals put an offer out there that's a fair one. They can potentially revisit it down the road uh, a couple weeks from now maybe, but that they've said – we have these other areas of need. We're not going to sit here and wait for three months. These, these uh, negotiations, especially with Scott Boris at the helm, can sometimes drag a little bit. And they've said, you know, we're, we're not going to wait. Yeah, and one last point that I find to be intriguing is that a lot of people have said, well, the Nats don't have room for Bryce Harper because of Soto and Robles and Adam Eaton. Well, let's make one thing clear. You always have room for a player like Bryce Harper. And I would even go on the contrary and say that the emergence of Juan Soto and Victor Robles could draw Bryce Harper back because he sees two top-of-the-line outfielders that he could potentially be in the outfield with for the next six years at minimum. So I think where it is a crowded outfield per se, I think that's almost a positive for the Nats and an appeal to Bryce Harper in in that regard. Yeah, and if people are saying, you know, the Nats only have so much money to spend in free agency and they have all these needs, that's very true. Um, But if you use that money to sign Bryce Harper— then you can trade either an Adam Eaton or a Victor Robles or however you want to do that. You have an abundance of outfielders at that point. You can get a starting pitcher another way or a catcher another way. And we'll talk about some of those areas of needs uh, coming up here in a couple minutes. Uh, We good on Bryce? We cover it all, you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out. All right, let's take a quick break. Here on Between Innings, when we come back, we're going to talk about upcoming needs in free agency through trades. We'll kick around a bunch of options. This is Between Innings with Dan Colco. All right, John, we're always looking uh, for local businesses in the area to sponsor us, and we are thrilled that Peters & Associates have been on board with us all year long. Aaron and Megan 
They run Peterson Associates. They're both CPAs. They can help you with any tax preparation, tax planning, and accounting services for yourself or your small business that you might need. Both of them huge Nats fans at the ballpark all the time with their kids. And they're, I'm sure, going to be back in 2019 and beyond. So uh, if you want to support a good local business run by some Nats fans, visit Aaron and Megan. You can go to their website at www.peterscpa.info or go to their Facebook page at facebook.com slash peterscpa. Any tax preparation, planning, or accounting services that you or your small business might need, Aaron and Megan have you covered. All right, John, uh, let's get into some more off-season topics here. We'll call this segment, What's on Tap? Let's talk kind of position by position here about the areas of need for this Nationals team. And we'll start with what I feel you can agree or disagree, I would think you would agree, is the Nationals' biggest need this off-season, starting pitching. The way they have their rotation right now, Max Scherzer is back, Steven Strasburg is back, Tanner Roark is back, and then guys who have not established themselves as much in the rotation but have shown flashes. Joe Ross, obviously, uh, has pitched up here a bunch, Eric Fetty, Jeffrey Rodriguez also got uh, a little bit of a taste of Major League Life in 2018. So you look at it as three, possibly four spots in the rotation already taken. Some people might say the Nats just need one starting pitcher. I'm of the mind, John, they should go get two, whether that's through free agency, whether that's trade. Where do you stand before we get into particular names on how many starting pitchers you think the Nats need this winter? I think they need at least two. And when I say that, I say that meaning that they'll probably need or want to get one frontline guy and then get multiple proven veterans, guys like a Jeremy Hellickson from last year or even Edwin Jackson from years before that, that can come into spring training, have a track record, and can vie for that fifth spot. We don't necessarily have the depth in the the minor leagues that the Nats thought they did maybe with what some guys did in 2018, but give Joe Ross, give Eric Fetty some competition in spring training that maybe will help them in the long run. So I think they'll get at least two, if not three. And one thing that we've seen in past years and especially saw it in 2018 is that you can never have enough starting pitching and you really do need to be nine, ten guys deep. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And the Nationals saw that firsthand in 2018. They have injuries to Steven Strasburg and to Jeremy Hellickson. And uh, all of a sudden, the rotation is kind of out of whack and they struggled there with their starting pitching for a couple months. You need to have capable guys that you can rely upon out of the minor leagues who who are going to get 10 starts a year because of injuries. It's just going to happen. So you need that depth. Uh, I think two, uh, you know, kind of at, at a minimum, you can see how Joe Ross and Eric Fetty progress and you go from there. Now let's talk about specific names here. And We'll talk first about the free agent market because there are a lot of options out there. Headlines, I guess you could say, by Patrick Corbin, by Dallas Keuchel, two left-handed options. You also have right-handed. There's uh, J.A. Happ as well, another lefty option, probably on a shorter-term deal. Right-handed options, Nathan Eovaldi. We talked about him, had a massive postseason. His stock really went up. Charlie Morton out there as well. 
Matt Harvey kind of, you know, reestablished himself a little bit with the Reds in the second half. Um, there are plenty of starting pitchers out there on the free agent market. If I had to put a, a couple of them maybe at the top of the Nationals wish list, I, I think Patrick Corbin is less likely just because he's kind of a one-year established guy. Had, had a nice 2018 where he had an ERA in the low threes. But prior to that, I mean, 2016, an ERA above five. 2017, um, got his innings up there and was making some progress. He's trending in the right direction. But to me, John Patrick Corbin, really just kind of the one year, which in my mind makes him a little less desirable. If you're given that much money in that many years, four or five years to a, a free agent starter, you want track record. Yeah, and I almost feel like Corbin is getting more pub than Keuchel, which I find odd. Maybe it's because he's a hair younger, but... I, I'm with you. I kind of like Dallas Keuchel better. I think he fits into the Nats rotation better. He has a proven track record. He's a winner. He's been on winning teams the last few years with the Astros. So, yeah, I, I like Dallas Keuchel. I think he fits in nicely. And, like you said, it makes more sense that the Nats would pursue a frontline lefty than a righty. Eovaldi, obviously, his stock went way up in the World Series. But to me, if you get him, then the Nats have Max, Strauss, and Eovaldi, who are all power right-handed pitcher. So I think they might look for a lefty to, to split up the top of the rotation. Um, some other lefties that are a little less of the caliber or the, the wow factor would be a Wade Miley, mm-hmm. who had a great second half for the Brewers, and Ryu for the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. He was injured but came back and had a sub-2 ERA in 15 starts. So there are some guys out there that aren't maybe going to demand the big, big contract like Keuchel and Corbin likely will. But there, there isn't a shortage of lefty starters, which I think is key for the Nats. And I asked, you know, the Nats haven't had an issue with needing a lefty in their rotation for a little while because Gio Gonzalez has been here. I asked Mike Rizzo the final series of the season when we were in Denver um, whether he feels having a lefty in your rotation is a must. He said it's not a must. What's a must is having pitchers who can get outs, regardless of what arm they throw with. But he did say, in an ideal world, it would be nice to have a lefty. And, uh, you know, you're talking about a division in the National League East with a lot of power-hitting left-handers who you want to neutralize a little bit. And to your point, I think you kind of want to have a different look, you know, beyond just the lefty-lefty matchups. It's nice to be able to throw something different at teams, especially if you're putting a guy between Max and Strasburg. Just a different look uh, because those guys are similar in terms of velocity hoping Steven can get his back in the mid-90s like we expect. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think Dallas Keuchel is a guy that they will target. Um, Charlie Morton really intrigues me. He, kind of a late bloomer, has had success with the Astros the last couple of years. And being from the East Coast, I believe he's from Delaware, uh, has said that he wants to be closer to home and would probably take, or he has family in Delaware perhaps, he, he would take a shorter term deal. You wouldn't need to guarantee as much, but you're getting a guy who still has posted pretty solid numbers over the last couple of years. So that's an intriguing name to me, him wanting to be back East. The Nats maybe not wanting to guarantee 90 million possibly to a starter. Um, we'll see how that all plays out, but there, there are plenty of options out there on the free agent market from the headline guys, Keiko and Corbin down to, to plenty of lower tier guys as well. Yeah, Charlie Morton, it's funny. I'm just looking at his stats, and we say he's a late bloomer. Well, maybe that's just because he came up with Pittsburgh, and no one gives Pittsburgh really attention because he was starting every day by 25, 26 years old. But, but yeah, uh, he, he's been much better later in his career, and 
And there, like you said, there's plenty of guys out there, which I find it very advantageous for the Nats because all the attention is going to be on the top few guys, but there are a lot of quality starters. It's a deep free agent starting pitching uh, pool this year. Okay, so beyond that, though, and as we said, plenty of options on the free agent market, there are a couple of teams that have expressed a desire to get rid of some starting pitchers that they have, uh, teams that are looking to sell. And there are two names that pop out to me that could be really good fits for the Nats. First, the Diamondbacks have said that they're looking to sell some pieces. Robbie Ray, a former Nationals farmhand, was included in the Doug Fister deal a while back, has established himself the last couple of years with the Diamondbacks, hard-throwing lefty, could potentially be in the mix. Could that be a guy that Mike Rizzo could look to bring back into the fold? Then there's James Paxton. The Mariners have said that they're selling. They've already made a deal with the Rays. Um, and James Paxton under contract for two more years, 2019 and 2020, and another hard-throwing lefty, you know, mid, mid-90s velocity, good peripherals, um, an intriguing option there as well. So it's not just, I guess my point here, John, in a very long-winded fashion, as I tend to do, is that it's not just free agents that are out there. There are plenty of ways for the Nationals to get a starting pitcher or two that they might want. Yeah, it's going to be a balancing act for both of those guys because while, yes, they, they would fit nicely into the Nats' plans and the Nats' rotation, it depends what the teams want for them. If they want the world for them, then the Nats are going to have to pull back off of them because neither of them have proven to say that they can stay healthy. Both of them, the most innings that James Paxson has ever thrown was in 2018, he threw 160, and Robbie Ray, he threw 174 back in 2016. So both of them have had their struggles staying healthy, but if the price is right, meaning the deal is right, then certainly they'd be good fits for the Nats. And you also have to balance, you know, this is not the same Nationals farm system in terms of top-end talent that it was a few years ago. You trade away, you know, Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, some of these other guys that the Nationals have traded, it's going to thin out your system a little bit. And this is still a Nats farm system that has a lot of talent coming, but in terms of top-tier trade pieces, at this point, if you're keeping Victor Robles, you know, Carter Keeboom's pretty much your top prospect and do you want to deal him if you do deal him what you know what else do you really have coming so um the nationals will need to balance all of this out but again there are plenty of ways this winter for the nationals to go get a couple starting pitchers and you have to believe that mike rizzo and his staff are going to be um putting feelers out all over the place doing their their due diligence as riz loves to say and they're going to come down with with a couple intriguing guys for sure. Yeah, totally agree on all counts. All right, let's pivot now, John, to the catching position. This is something that, to be frank, has been a little bit of an area of need since Wilson Ramos left the Nationals. Um, Matt Wieters, two years with the Nats, 2017 and 2018, battled injuries and battled you know, consistency offensively. Did return from his hamstring injury and you know, maybe quietly put up some solid numbers down the stretch there are catchers out there on the free agent market but it's not really a loaded class Yasmani Grandal the top option there was given a qualifying offer by the Dodgers a guy that can hit 20 plus home runs uh, known as a I think a pretty good pitch framer but we saw in the postseason John can be a bit of a defensive liability behind the plate are, are you willing to pay X number of years and X number of dollars for a guy who's going to hit 
240 and struggle for you defensively but can provide a little pop? I don't know. Beyond that, not a ton else out there in terms of frontline guys. Yeah, I agree. And the, I guess the, the whole idea of a catcher has changed in my mind over the last handful of years from the 90s where the catcher was a huge offensive position. Now it's very much more of a managing the staff position and if you get some offense from them, great. And like you said, Weeders did bounce back at the end of the year. He hit almost 240 for the year. So, And that's exactly what Yasmani Grandal hit. Right. And Weeders was hitting eighth. Grandal is more of a middle-of-the-lineup guy for the Dodgers. So may, maybe they do get Weeders again and they go back because we know Max loves throwing to him. But the Nats paid Weeders $10.5 million last season. They could get him for a lot less than that. So there's some options out there. Kurt Suzuki's out there who's been a Nat, who has also killed a Nat hmm. because he's a Nat killer for sure. Um, but I don't think... It's a position they're going to drop a ton of money into. I agree because I don't necessarily think Grandal is the guy. And beyond him, we're talking about the likes of Brian McCann, who's 35 years old and hit 212 last year. We're talking about Jonathan Lucroy, who the Nationals had interest in you know, a few years ago, but his offense has really dropped off. He's 33 years old now, and his bat isn't what it was. Wilson Ramos, yeah, fans would love a reunion there. I just don't know that that's in the cards got to get a guy that can stay healthy for you and unfortunately Wilson has been unable to do that consistently over the last handful of years Robinson Chirinos you know AJ Ellis couple other options out there but we're not talking about you know guys that you can give 130 starts to and know that they're going to go out there and produce for you so I do think that maybe a a platoon sort of situation with Matt Weeders maybe starting two out of five games and a Kurt Suzuki or a Martin Maldonado or someone like that, where you combined between those two guys, maybe only need to pay six, seven million bucks, and you're you're getting a you know a decent platoon there, and Max is able to throw to to Weeders every fifth day. I, I think that is possible. Uh, I I think that given the lack of top end options, that might be the way that the Nationals choose to go about it. I think that's an interesting concept, but I like it. I think that's a very good point. And I also wonder what the Nats take away from Spencer Keeboom's 2018 was because he filled in, he, he took the backup catcher role away from Pedro Severino and he was the backup catcher. And the pitcher seemed to like to throw to him and he seemed to very, very much improve throughout the year calling a game and being a, a, a signal caller um, at a major league level. And so may, maybe they have him in their plan somewhere down the line. I'm not sure, but th- there's certainly some options, but I don't think it's going to be one that is going to be their sole focus in the offseason. I agree. Okay, so we've covered starting pitching. We've covered catcher. Let's pivot now to, in my mind, John, the third most important area of need remaining for the Nats. That's second baseman. Now, the Nats could choose to go about this a couple different ways. They could go get DJ LeMahieu, the top free agent second baseman, sign him to what you know, four-year deal, Pay him $60 million, whatever it's going to cost. You could do that. And DJ LeMayhew is known as a really strong clubhouse presence, a veteran leader, goes about things the right way, except when he's uh, trying to win the batting title and sits out the final couple games of the season and doesn't let Murph have a chance at it. Not that we're still bitter about that or anything. But uh, LeMayhew is is a heck of a player. He, He can produce with the bat, great defender. So do you go down that road, or you have Howie Kendrick coming back from his Achilles surgery. You have Wilmer Defoe, who's shown some versatility, some tools. 
Do you give that job to those two? Maybe add in, a, you know, a veteran presence, another bench guy that can kind of split the job two or three ways. And you save some money and that allows you to spend a little more for a starting pitcher or for a catcher. And then maybe you have Carter Keboom come up late in the year if that's not working out. This, this could go a couple different ways when we're talking about the second base job. Yeah, to me it really comes down to their plans for Carter Keboom. Because everyone says that he is tracking towards being an everyday major league shortstop. But the Nationals have Trey Turner. Mm-hmm. So if they're not going to move Spencer Keboom, I'm, yes, Carter, Carter Keboom to second base, they have a decision to make. Because you can't start Trey and Carter at the same time. So he has been playing second in the Arizona Fall League. If their plan is to transition him to second base, then it makes no sense to sign DJ LeMahieu. If it's not then DJ makes a lot more sense to me. So I, to me, that this position hinges on Carter Keboom because if th- they can't just leave him in the minors. You know, th- he's a great trade pre- piece if you want to do that. But I don't know what they're going to do. I think it makes sense to try to keep both Trey and Carter. But we'll see. And there, there's plenty of names to your point about adding another maybe utility guy, Astrobo Cabrera, Jed Lowry, Brian Dozier, Neil Walker. There's tons of guys out there. So that that's a possibility too. But I think the Nats are happy with the Howie and Defoe platoon for now. So like I said, it comes down to me, Carter Keboom, and that directly impacts their need to go out and get DJ LeMahieu or, or top-line second baseman. And maybe you figure out what the price tag is going to be on DJ LeMahieu, and you see if that's worth doing. And if it is, and you sign him for three years, four years, at what you feel like is, isn't is a good rate, then you've suddenly got a, a guy in Carter Keboom who's blocked, but could become a nice trade piece for you to go get a starting pitcher or a catcher or whatever you want to get. Um, this is why, and, and we can get to this... Um, a little bit later in more detail, this this offseason to me is going to be fascinating because there's so many different things that could hinge on on other things. All right, so that's the second baseman uh, position. Now let's talk about the final, what, what might be the final relief uh, pickup that the Nats could make in free agency. I think ideally, John, they'd like it to be a lefty, someone that you can pair with Matt Grace the way that they have their bullpen now after the additions of Rosenthal and Bearclaw, you've got Doodle, you've got those two guys, you've got Wander Suero, you've got Justin Miller, you've got Matt Grace, you've got Coda Glover. You've got the makings of a good bullpen there. And some of these guys that were working high leverage spots for you down the stretch are now maybe back in their more comfortable roles. But there is still a need there for maybe one more guy. And I think ideally they would like it to be a lefty, and there are some options out there that uh, could help the Nats on the free agent market. Yeah, there's a lot of lefties out there, and I think it has to be a lefty. I, I think they need a lefty. Matt Grace emerged in 2018 as a bona fide left-handed option out of the out of the pen, but he needs help. He needs he can't be the lefty. He needs to be one of the lefties out there. So, but there, yeah, there, there's there's plenty of guys. Zach Britton. Um, very familiar in this part of the uh, the country. Andrew Miller, I think, is going to command a big contract. But guys like Tony Sipp, who we don't know or don't hear that much about because he's in the AL West with the Astros, but very good stats from Tony. So th- there's plenty of options out there. But I think Mike Rizzo has had and will continue to have the mindset that you can never have enough good bullpen arms. So I wouldn't be surprised if they add one or two more guys. I agree. Um 
And in general, whether it's lefties, whether it's righties, there's a stocked relief core out there. You're talking about guys like Kimbrell and Joaquin Soria, Kelvin Herrera, you know, if he's healthy, could could get, you know, a nice contract somewhere. David Robertson, um, Cody Allen has had a lot of success with the Indians over the last couple of years. Um, plenty of names out there, and there's going to be a lot of interested teams. So where do the Nats fit in there? We'll see. Uh, but I do think uh, I'm with you. They need at least one more reliever, and I think lefty is the way to go. Now, let's kind of just broaden this out here, John, to, to get back to my earlier point, which is that in my mind, this is the most interesting, uh, exciting, and I would say important offseason that the Nationals have had to this point in their team history. Still a very young team, but the Bryce Harper thing is a big piece of it, whether he goes or whether he stays. But even beyond that, you're talking about a rotation that's getting older with Max and Strauss. How do you choose to, to improve that area of your roster? Do you look for younger options? Do you look for controllable guys? How are you targeting that? Um, what are you going to do behind the plate? An area that, that is definitely in need of improvement. Are you definitely running out in outfields of... Adam Eaton, Juan Soto, and Victor Robles. Are, are you doing something else there? There's just so many factors at play. And to me, this, this offseason, in a lot of ways, will shape the organization for a couple of years to come. Especially coming off 2018 when the Nats mightily underperformed. And, but they're not rebuilding. So right. you know, even, with the, even if Bryce Harper does not come back, the Nats are not rebuilding. They have the core to compete next year and for years to come. So while they're maybe retooling a little bit yeah. in certain areas, they're, they're still really good. And they're, they're still going to compete for the NL East uh, title next year. So, yeah, it, and there's so many unknowns because Harper obviously is the biggest unknown, but there, there's plenty of other ways they could go. So it's going to be one of the most entertaining off-seasons as a Nats fan uh, in, in a long time, for sure. And to your point, uh, I hosted an event for the Nationals Youth Baseball Academy last weekend. Uh, Max was there, Davey Martinez was there. And Davey gave some brief remarks to the, the fans that were assembled and said, we're, we're going to win next year. I don't want people to misinterpret things coming off of a down 2018 and say, uh, you know, this offseason the Nats aren't, you know, going to invest money. They're not going to target the right players. They're, they're going to pull back a little bit. He said, no, no, no. We're going to contend in 2019. And that's the way that he and Mike Rizzo and the whole front office is going about things. So how do they get there? We'll see. We'll see. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And one final point on Bryce. Um, a buddy of mine made the point yesterday uh, that imagine being so good at anything in life that somebody offers you $300 million and you're like, you know, thanks for the offer, but I'm, I'm going to look around. I'm going to see what else is out there. Like that, it, what's he going to get? How much is he going to get? Where is he going to get it from? It's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, well, something we'll never be able to relate to, but that is just unbelievable, to be honest. And one final thought, because you mentioned Davey Martinez. I thought it was a strong statement by Mike Rizzo and the, the Lerner family to bring back the entire coaching staff. They got a lot of negative publicity last year for the underperformance of the Nationals, and rightfully so, maybe. But... They're standing, they're standing by these guys, and we, we all know that if the Nats are successful in 2019, maybe make the playoffs, maybe win a series or two or three, 
no one's going to remember the struggles of 2018. So I thought that was a, a strong statement by the uh, ownership and front office. Yeah, full coaching staff, Derek Lilquist on the pitching side, uh, Kevin Long and Joe Dillon on the hitting side, and then the base coaches as well, uh, Tim Bogar and Bob Henley, and Henry Blanco in the bullpen as well. So we'll have the full gang back in 2019. We're excited to work with those guys again. Um, just to wrap up, John, some cool stuff Uh regarding Max Scherzer and Juan Soto, both among the finalists for their respective awards. Max Scherzer, a finalist for the Cy Young Award yet again. My goodness, this guy is good. And Juan Soto, a finalist for the National League Rookie of the Year. So that one will be announced, what, on Monday, the Rookie of the Year, and then Wednesday for the Cy Young Award. So cool things, not surprising for either Max or or Juan to be included among the three finalists, but uh, always cool to see Nationals a part of those groups. Yeah, I think it's everyone's kind of assuming Jacob DeGrom's going to win the Cy Young and the 1.70 ERA will probably win you a Cy Young most years. Yeah. But he, Max will get second if he doesn't win it. And that'll be six straight years that Max has been in the top five of the Cy Young with three wins. And Soto, I think he should win the Rookie of the Year. It's him or Acuna Jr. But a note on those two, I think it's super cool that they're on the MLB All-Star Tour in Japan right now together. Because it's great for the game that those two young players are getting to know each other more and just being out there for the world to see. Soto homered yesterday in the game in Japan. The patented uh, opposite field bomb down the left field line. You should have heard the announcers. They were like, at a fly ball to left field. Oh, it's gone! Because you, no one has power like that. And it's just it was it's really cool to see those two over there um, showing off their talents. Yeah, you see a ball come off the bat like that from a left-handed hitter, and you're like, oh, pop up the left field. Right. And it just keeps traveling. What a year for Juan Soto overall. The numbers that he put up, the way that he came from low A to the majors, had the type of season that he did, and now he's out in Japan visiting a new country, getting to spend time with some of the best players in Major League Baseball, I think it, it'll only help him, John, because it'll allow him to feel even more comfortable and settled next year. He, he feels, not that he ever lacked confidence, but when you're new to the Major Leagues, it's intimidating. You're with all these guys that you've been watching on TV and you've heard about, and now he's, over the course of the regular season and now into the winter, getting to be around these guys as human beings more and realize that you know, he's just like one of them. And so I think that'll only help him next year. He'll come into spring training feeling totally confident, comfortable, and ready to go attack his sophomore year in the bigs. Yeah, low A to a potential Rookie of the Year award winner. That's I don't know if that's ever – we'd have to check if that's ever been done because I seriously doubt it has been. He went from low A to the majors in a month. Yeah. A month and then had the year that he did. It's just ridiculous. Um, All right, so that'll pretty much wrap things up. Any final thoughts, John, are we good? I think we're good. I think – Everyone should look forward to the uh, winter meetings in Vegas. I think it's fitting that they're in Vegas for Bryce, who is a Vegas resident. So it's going to be fun. And that's uh, December 9th to the 13th in uh, Sin City. That will be interesting for sure. Is Bryce signed by then? Does he get a deal while everyone in the baseball world is out in Vegas? We'll have to wait and see. We'll see uh, whether the Nationals are in the mix heavily, whether they choose to go other directions. Again, it's going to be fascinating. John, thanks so much as always, buddy. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks to everybody at uh, Peters & Associates. Thanks to all of you for listening. Have a great uh, November holiday season. We'll check back at some point later on on the Between Innings podcast. Thanks for making us part of your day. This has been Between Innings with Dan Kolko.